the third uh, sermon in Habakkuk uh, for us, and I'm excited to, uh, to get back into it today. As, as you find your place in Habakkuk, uh, I'm going to say a word that might create the very thing that it means in you when I say it, uh, anxiety. Um, as, a, as a counselor and even working at the ranch with, with boys, there's not uh, very many people that I come across that don't struggle with some sort of anxiety or anxiousness. It is a, a quite a common um, occurrence in our lives. I know myself, I struggle with it a lot. And uh, sometimes my body tells me that I'm struggling with it before I realize that I'm struggling with it. Um, but anxiety and its uh, unholy uh, siblings, fear and worry, impact many people in the United States. And especially since COVID and lockdown and things like that, it has risen in, in the United States and probably across the world, I would be willing to bet. Um, in the United States, I would say there's a few reasons why we, we uh, see this rise, because there's a greater uh, push for mental health awareness. There is a greater uh, push for medication and things like that, and there's constant discussion for therapy. And anxiety takes on various labels uh, in the world of psychology, and you've heard probably many or all of them. Uh, according to the page Anxiety and Depression Association of America, here are some statistics that they mention about anxiety. There's something called general anxiety, and it affects 6.8 million adults in the United States. Panic affects 6 million people. Social anxiety affects 15 million people, and it typically begins around the age of 13. There's also obsessive-compulsive, 2.5 million. Post-traumatic stress, which we would a lot of times know as PTSD, 7.7 million. And anxiety specifically affects 31.9% of teens from 13 to 18 years old. And I would say that's increased, too, since social media has exploded as well. Um, the, the stats of, of this page help me to understand and probably help us to understand that even within this body of people, there's plenty of people that struggle with anxiety. That we all have uh, something in our, in our body or in our mind that, that makes us have elevated blood pressure or nervousness when things happen or... Uh, when I ask, I text the men, hey, can you read for us this week? They're like, oh, you know, some people aren't, aren't so excited to, to do that. And that causes anxiety in our hearts and our minds to rise up. And the Bible does not deny this either, because from the Old Testament through the New Testament, the Bible talks about our fear, our worry, and our anxiety, and calls us to cast our, our anxieties upon the Lord. And the the difference, though, between the secular and the Bible are uh, the, in the remedies. The secular world says that we need therapy and medication for symptom relief, whereas the Bible tells us that the Lord provides himself as the ultimate cure. The one we are to reverently fear is the cure to worldly fear and anxiety. Instead of uh, worrying about that which we cannot control, we are called to put our trust in the one who controls all things. And so you're thinking, we're talking about Habakkuk. Why are you talking about anxiety? 
If you listen and read through the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk has many reasons to be anxious. He has many reasons to be very worried about what is coming, what has been prophesied by God himself to come to pass. And everything that he knows is, has been prophesied to come tumbling down around him. And he is anxiously awaiting that to be fulfilled. And so he has every reason to worry, every reason to fear, every reason to have anxious thoughts. But Habakkuk does something that we need to pay attention to today. So we're only going to hit just two verses of what Brandon read for us. This is just part one of this sermon. And we're only going to stay in the first two verses today. Um, in our culture, Habakkuk would be facing a crisis of faith. But Habakkuk doesn't give up on his faith or give in to his anxiety. Instead, he continues to take his cares to the Lord. And at the end of what Brandon read for us, in, at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I will, this is Habakkuk, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He takes his anxieties to the Lord. He takes his complaint to the Lord. And then he says, I'm going to stand at my watchtower and I'm going to look out and wait for the Lord to respond. He does exactly what we should do. He casts his cares upon the Lord, and then he, he waits for the Lord to answer. And Habakkuk begins this second prayer in verse 12 with uh, a survey or a uh, rapid fire of the attributes or character of God. And he uses these to combat what is an anxious heart as he recalls who the Lord is and he faithfully rehearses the truth and seeks to understand how God could be these great things that he knows and still allow the Chaldeans to come and do what God said they were coming to do. He, he, he's trying to, he's wrestling with this inside of him. And that's what anxiety does. It feels like we are being ripped apart. We are holding on to this, this thing that seems like it's ravaging our heart, even if we know something else to be true. There's a fear that is, it's like our cares are in all these different places at once and we can't get a hold of them. Well, Habakkuk is seeing that God is all of these things and he knows God to be true in these character-like attributes. But yet what God just told him was coming to happen doesn't make sense. James Montgomery Boyce illustrates uh, this idea. He says, Were you ever on a sidewalk in winter when the snow was cleared off but there were still treacherous icy spots? How did you walk? If you were like most people, you kept your eyes down and placed your feet carefully on um, safe ground. He said, you must do the same thing spiritually. The problem that you face is a slippery spot, but surely not all your experience with God is like that. Get on to the parts that are firm. Remind yourself of things you know. Then you will find that the problem begins to fall into... Uh, can't get my page to turn. Why is it not working? There we go. <laughs> Into proper perspective and principles for solving it begin to emerge. So he says, remember the things that you know to be true. I've heard another pastor say, remember in the dark what you know to be true in the light. Remember the things that you've been taught when the questions begin to rise. Because it is true that God is still the same. And so today we want to look at the fact that the Lord is our hope for our anxious hearts. 
When you face anxiety and fear and worry, what name for God do you usually cry out to? What attribute of God or character do you remember to be true about God? Is it that He is faithful? Is it that He is present with you? Is it that He's all-powerful? What do you think about? What attribute is the most comforting? Think about all the names as you read through the Psalms. All the names and uh, character uh, traits of God as you read through the Psalms. He's a fortress. He's a refuge. He is a mighty rock. Um, He's near the brokenhearted. When we pray to the Lord, we should pray in regard to who God is in His character and who He is in name. Habakkuk recalls uh, five names, as as I said a minute ago. Let me read uh, Habakkuk 1, 12 through 13 for us again. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly, idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk begins with, The Lord is our hope for anxious hearts because He is the everlasting God. And he uses the term Yahweh. In your Bibles, it'll be LORD in all caps. So every time you see the word LORD in all caps, that is actually the Hebrew term Yahweh. And it is actually mentioned 6,800 times in the Old Testament itself. 6,800 times. And you see it in in, um, all caps. There's also another version that is LORD in just like a normal capital L with a lowercase o-r-d, which is Adonai, meaning just like LORD and MASTER. But this one is the all caps, and he is calling out the, the proper name of God as he remembers him. A uh, modern transliteration of this name is Jehovah, and you've heard that one before. As, as we think about this name, the best passage is the first time that God uses his proper name in Exodus chapter 3. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, Well, what is his name? The God of your father, or uh, they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so we see in this passage the idea of what Yahweh means. It means I am who I am. It is the verb to be. It means He is present. He is ever-present. God doesn't live in the past and the future and the present like we do. Like we, we are stuck in one time and we can remember back and we can look towards the future, but God is in all those places at once. And it's always present to Him. Meaning no matter where you are, no matter when you are, God is always present. He is the everlasting God. And He's telling Moses, I am with you. I am always with you. So when you go to Pharaoh and when you go to the people of Israel, I will be with you. I will be constant. 
And he is uh, telling them that, that he is the own self-determination for his being. There's nothing that created him. There's nothing that, that gives him power. He is who he is. Turn with me, though, just a couple chapters over to Exodus. Well, not if you're in Habakkuk, it's not a couple chapters over. Go to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. The Lord says he will bring the people to be his people. He will be their God, and they shall know that he is the Lord their God who brought them out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And he ties his proper name, Yahweh, to this decree. So look at Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. See how the Lord reveals himself as greater than the fears and anxiety of Moses and the people of Israel. They're worried. Moses was like, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm just, I'm just this guy. And you're wanting me to go and talk for you. And he says, I am going to be with you. I am going to give you the words that you, you need to speak. But then the Israelites are like, um, Pharaoh and his people, they're pretty uh, strong. And we're worried about trying to get out of this place. Because every time you say that we need to leave, Pharaoh burdens us yet even greater. And God says, I am Yahweh and I am going to be with you and I'm going to drive you out. But let's see how he does this with the plagues. With the first plague, the water to blood, Yahweh shows his power is greater than Kum, the god of the source of the river Nile, and over Happy, the god of the flooding Nile, and the lord of the fish, and Osiris, the god who had the Nile as his bloodstream. With the second plague of frogs, Yahweh proves greater than Hecht, the Egyptian god with the head of a frog. The third plague of gnats, Yahweh is greater than Geb, the god of the dust of the earth. The fourth plague of flies over Kepri, the god with the head of a beetle who is said to move the sun in the sky. The fifth plague of sick livestock. Yahweh proves greater than Hathor, the fertility goddess who was depicted with the head, of, head and horns of a bull. With plague six, boils on the skin. Yahweh was greater than Isis, the goddess of health, and Imhotep, the god of healing. With plague seven, hail, Yahweh was greater than Nut, the goddess of sky, and Shu, the goddess of the wind and air. 
Plague 8, locusts. Yahweh demonstrated he was greater than Neper and Nepri, the god and goddess of grain, and Set, the god of disorder. Plague 9, darkness. Yahweh sent darkness for three days and revealed he was more powerful than Egypt's most worshipped and revered god, Ra, the god of the sun. Plague 10, the death of the firstborn. This final plague, Yahweh proves himself even greater than Pharaoh, who is believed to be a god. This plague was a judgment on all the Egyptian gods. Pharaoh had ordered the killing of the Israelite babies, and now the firstborn of all of Egypt would die in the final plague. The reason that this is so important for uh, Habakkuk to be using the term Yahweh is because he would know this history. He would know that Yahweh was tied to this this great work and this great movement. And God himself tells Habakkuk that these Chaldeans were going to come and they viewed themselves as gods. So he's crying out to Yahweh, the the true God who overpowered all of the gods of uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And he's crying out to him to overpower the Chaldeans who saw themselves as God. And so this is important to remember that he's using this name on purpose. But yet, if we look in the New Testament, Jesus himself, our great Redeemer and Mediator, reveals that he is God by stating that this is his name as well. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the writer of the Hebrews presents this same thought in reference to Jesus. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So think about how this brings comfort to Habakkuk and how it should bring comfort to us. Habakkuk is making a plea to the Lord's most fundamental name and his greatest characteristic of his ultimate eternal being. And he's lamenting this plan that there's going to come somebody that's going to try to trample on that name and claim themselves to be God and destroy the people of God. And he knows this name is the name of the one true God over and against all the gods of this world. So how can the name of God being I am who I am, Yahweh, how does that bring comfort in the anxiety that you face? He is the same yesterday, way back in Exodus, as he was in Habakkuk's time, as he was in the time of Christ, as he is today. Yahweh is the only one who can bring deliverance. He's the only one that can bring redemption from the sin that you face, the trial that you are in, the death which is coming. Just as we sang a few moments ago, as we face the wave of death, Christ is the same. There is hope even in death. And every time we sing that, thankfully I wasn't singing today, but it's hard for me to sing that. Just the thought of when we face the wave of death, that is the most ultimate thing that that we seem to experience. Because once that, that happens, it's done. All that we know has come to an end. Time, everything. But yet, as believers, we know that Christ is the hope for the future. Jesus, or just as he stilled Moses' anxiety, he can still yours and mine. He states in his name, Yahweh, that he is with you. He's not stuck in the past. He's not somewhere off in the future and we wait for him to come 
He is the ever-present here and now. He is the eternal God. What you are anxious over will eventually end. Praise the Lord. But God, Yahweh, remains forever. But next, Habakkuk cries out to the Almighty God, Eloah, my God, he says. And this name refers to God's supreme power, His strength, His might. And it's usually depicted with another name. It's usually put together with to uh, amplify or uh, exalt other names of God. And he uses this right in between Yahweh, the everlasting God, and my Holy One, and the Rock. He, he, he uses this word Eloah. And he is the supreme, sovereign, sufficient, all-powerful, mighty God. Habakkuk thinks about the first answer from God and how God depicts these coming invaders as seeing themselves as God, seeing themselves as Almighty. Look at verse 11 in Habakkuk chapter 1. He says, They sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their own God. They see themselves as the Almighty. And he, Habakkuk here, cries out to the truly Almighty God. In his fear of the coming invasion, he cries out to the Almighty God to act. Because he knows what we know in Proverbs 21. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. He cries out to this God, to the true God, the Almighty God, to turn the might of the Chaldeans away. He cries out to him, Do it like you've done it in the past. Change what, what you have said is coming to pass. Because he knows that, that the king's heart is truly a stream of water in God's almighty hand. And God can change this. But he cries out to him to be the all-powerful God that is greater than the enemy that he faces. The fear which consumes him. The anxiety which reveals itself in, in uncontrollable symptoms. He is the almighty God that is bigger than the, the, the medical issues that you have. The cancer which ravages the body. He's greater than the evil that distorts truth in this world. He is greater than any temptation that you and I face. He's greater than pride. He's greater than anger, than porn, than drugs and alcohol addiction. And in your song in the night, remember that Yahweh is the Almighty God. He is bigger than any fear, any anxiety, any struggle that you face. And meditate on Isaiah 40. We just sang part of these verses with the kids. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And remember, or see this in, in this passage, he's using the name Yahweh once again. But he also, Habakkuk mentions a third name for God, a third characteristic. My Holy One. The Lord is our hope for anxious hearts because He is the Holy One. Habakkuk makes a plea in verse 13 
as he's wrestling with who God is and what he, what he says is coming to pass, he says, you are of purer eyes than to see evil. And you cannot look at wrong. So why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You may have asked a similar question before. It doesn't seem like that makes sense to know that God is holy and that he is pure and he is perfect. But yet there's times when those who are righteous suffer almost for righteousness sake. Like why, how can God look upon that and see that happening? How can God allow this pagan nation to come and to ravage the people of God? How can he allow the, these people that, that worship themselves as God to set themselves up over the God of Israel? How can he let that happen? Why would God ever plan for an evil pagan nation to come and conquer God's chosen people? And he said, it's like he's saying, God, Yahweh, you said you would be our God always. You said you would be Yahweh. You made a covenant with us. You are the Holy One, my Holy One. How can you allow, even raise up this wicked nation like the Chaldeans to come and take your chosen people away? And he is wrestling with who God is. However, as it is true with us, the issue is not in what Habakkuk knows about God. It's how he understands what God is doing. And the issue is what is Habakkuk's feeble human mind wrestling with understanding a holy, almighty, sovereign God. He knows the scripture. He knows who God is. But he can't seem to make it all fit together. And we find ourselves in the same place a lot of times. We know who God is, but we can't understand why these things are falling into place. Why life is just so hard. Yahweh, my God, this doesn't coincide with who you are. Yet he says one phrase that is very interesting. He says, we shall not die. He, he's a good theologian, and he knows the scripture and the implications of that scripture that God will keep a remnant of his people together and alive, no matter what comes, no matter what they face, that God will continue to keep his people. And he reminds himself of the truths of these truths when the storm rises and the questions abound. He chooses to remember the answer of who God ultimately is. God, I know that these people are coming. But we will not die. We will not be wiped off the face of the earth. You will keep us as a remnant. But how does God, the holiness of God, bring you comfort to your anxious heart? What are the truths of God with which you fight the lies of anxiety? This is an interesting idea to think about that if he was only the Holy One, there would not be much hope for us. And you might stop and be like, hang on a second, what do you mean? That if he is simply the Holy One, he's going to destroy our wickedness. But if he is our Holy One, if he's the one who stands in our place, then we have hope. We have an assurance that we do not have if he is simply the Holy One. This week we were memorizing in our fighter verses, Psalm 1, 5-6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, 
nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You must trust in this Yahweh, in this holy God, and you must trust that he is holy on your behalf, that he has lived in your place. Jesus is the great Redeemer, and he has obeyed the law of God on on our behalf. He has died on the cross and suffered in our place for not obeying the law. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and Satan. So as you think about him being the Holy One, think about how Habakkuk mentions it. He says, you are my God, my Holy One. And meditate on 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Only when we are in Christ can we have hope in the Holy One and know that we shall not die. If you're not in Christ, you do not trust Christ as your Savior, your Redeemer, then you will face the judgment and your goodness will not save you. So I implore you today to trust in the Lord. Trust in Him as my Holy One, as your Holy One. But fourthly, the anxieties you face today may be in your life to throw you upon the rock who is Christ. The Lord is our hope for anxious hearts because He is the faithful one. He is the rock. When God is called a rock, it is meant to communicate His impregnable strength. So His perfect reliability, His faithfulness. Deuteronomy 32 says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord. I will ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. And from the songs that we sing today, to the many other songs that we sing, we sing this idea that He is our rock. We sing Christ, our hope in life and death. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood, who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore? The rock of Christ. We also sing it in a song called Jesus is Better. There is no other so sure and steady. My hope is held in your hand. When castles crumble and breath is fleeting, upon this rock I will stand. A more familiar one is, When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And a newer one that we've sung is Psalm 62. For God alone I wait in silence. My soul is still before the Lord. He is my rock and my salvation. My fortress strong, I trust in Him. I'll not be shaken, I'll not be shaken, for all my hope is in His love. From God alone comes my salvation. I'll wait and trust His steadfast love. When it comes to anxiety and fear, when it comes to thinking about Habakkuk and what he was experiencing, How and why is the rock a picture of hope? For Habakkuk, the Lord being the rock, he was the only sure thing when everything around him was about to come crumbling down. 
The rock was the only thing that was going to be the same, was going to remain after all of this came to pass. And the world, when you know it, as it changes and you were caught in the hurricane of change, of suffering and persecution or even discipline, you can trust that the Lord who is a rock is unchanging, he's immovable, he's enduring, he's faithful. And meditate on Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Think about that. We sing that as a kid's song, and we do like some fun movements with that. But can you imagine the mountains being moved into the heart of the sea and you being peaceful in that situation? You finding comfort in the Lord who is the mighty rock with the mountains being moved into the heart of the sea? I can't imagine what that would be like. But it's not only that we gain the God or the, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, but we gain the God of peace. He is with us. And He can make you peaceful when the greatest mountains move into the heart of the sea. When something that you never thought would ever move is completely disheveled and sent away. When everything around you comes, tr- comes crumbling down, He's the rock. He's the refuge. He is the ever-faithful Redeemer and Savior. But lastly, Habakkuk mentions uh, the Lord is our hope for anxious hearts because He is the Sovereign One. Now, he doesn't mention this in a name. He doesn't say, O Sovereign One, do something about this situation. But he mentions two verbs that are uh, telling of the character of God, the action of God. He says, um, as he wrestles with this, this idea that God is sovereign and it seems like this is happening and, and, and he doesn't understand why it would happen, he says in verse 12, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. So he, he says, he acknowledges that God has ordained them, he has called this to come to pass. From time past. So he has set this up. But not only that, it says that he has established them. God himself has given the Chaldeans the power that they have. They claim it as their own, but he gave it to them. Even set them up for this purpose of disciplining the people of Judah because they had done what they were doing. They had fallen into idolatry and they had turned from the Lord. So God himself had set up this pagan nation, gave them this established kingdom for the purpose of then using them to discipline his own people, to to call them to be a judgment, to call them to be a reproof to the people of Judah. The Chaldeans have been ordained. They have been established by God for this purpose. And so we we think about all of these, these names and all of them go hand in hand. And there's even more that, that he didn't mention that we know we can describe God by. But if you remove any of them, he's not God. If you remove any of them, he becomes less than who he is. They are all intertwined. He is the faithful, the sovereign, the almighty, the um, uh, 
holy God. And he, is, he never ceases to be any of these things. He can be trusted to be good because he is faithful, because he's holy and omnipotent and everlasting and sovereign. And so, even as we mentioned last time, uh, in the first uh, part of this, this chapter, we mentioned that God is the sovereign God of history. And I'll pull up the slide from last time. That God is telling Habakkuk that he is under the control of all of history. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. We read this last time. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I, this is God, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. So he's telling Habakkuk, I am in control of this. This is happening because I am bringing it to pass. The second response that the Lord gives in the middle of the woes of the Chaldeans, he tells us in chapter 2, verse 14, that history follows a divine plan. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He's using this pagan nation to bring them and to remind and reproof the people of God so that they would hold God to be the true God. But not only that, then he will defeat the Chaldeans and prove that he is greater than even they are. His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the divine plan. But number three, history follows a divine timetable. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come and it will not delay. So Habakkuk is now, this is why he's in this anxious spot. Because he knows it's going to come to pass. But he has to trust that it's coming to pass when God says it's going to come. And finally, history is bound up with the divine kingdom. That everything that happens is for the purpose of the glory of the king. is for the glory of Christ. It's to bring him honor and fame. It's all bound up within the kingdom. Shauna and I are reading a, a, a Puritan book. And it has been uh, greater than probably any other book I've read before. And it's by the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. And it's titled, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he reminds us why we should strive to remember the Lord as our portion in the midst of suffering and anxiety. He says this, Now if you can enjoy God as your portion, if your soul can say with the church in Lamentations 3.24, The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Why should you not be satisfied and contented like God? God is contented. He is in eternal contentment in himself. Now, if you have that God as your portion, why should you not be contented with him alone? Since God is contented with himself alone, if you have him, you may be contented with him alone. And it may be that that is the reason why your outward comforts are taken from you, that God may be all in all to you. And so he's telling you that It may be that you have set some of these comforts up and they're idols to you. And it may be a good thing. It may be your health. And you're struggling with this this disease or this 
constant pain or this chronic migraine or things like that. And you don't understand why in the world this is happening. And it may be because you've set up comfort to be a god. And God is, is causing this to happen so that you are pushed upon the rock of Christ. That you're pushed upon Him to be that salvation. Not your health. Or maybe you've lost a job recently. And you're like, God, I don't know how I'm going to provide for my family. I don't know how this is all going to work. And he says, well, maybe you trusted too much in your own income that you were driven upon the rock of Christ to be, let him be the one who provides for you. As, as, we, as we deal with this, the issue is, is in us. It's in our misunderstanding of who God is and what he does. He is not in error. The things that have come to pass upon you are not, are not something that he has sinned in doing. He is hopefully revealing to you how you can be drawn and, and brought up underneath the umbrella of his security and his safety and his comfort so that you aren't trying to find that comfort and that security in yourself. He wants to be your all in all. Now, my family and I watched a movie yesterday, and I don't want this to be misunderstood like a genie in a bottle. That we just rub that lamp and we say, okay, God, you're holy, you're almighty, you're, and then poof, he pops up and he gives you three wishes and your suffering's gone. That's not the way that this works. That when we remember the attributes and character of God and we pray through them and we study through them, it doesn't make all of our situations change. It's not like the suffering goes away. You and I change. Our perspective changes. We understand who God is. We come to know who the true God is. And we are able to endure through that suffering. There's a, a, a verse that is brought up all the time to me in counseling. And people say, I know God won't give me more than I can endure. And that's partly right. It's partly right. But when it's partly right, it's not right. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is where this thought comes from. And it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And I want us to see, in conclusion, four promises from this verse. That it is important for us to remember as we are wrestling like Habakkuk does. He has this situation that he can't understand. And he remembers who God is and it doesn't seem like they add up. But it's in that situation that God is making Habakkuk change. In the same way for us, we have this temptation that, that we don't understand how, what God is doing in us. We don't understand why this is happening. But he wants us to stop believing the lies that that temptation tells us. So he gives us four promises when it comes to anxiety from that verse. There is no anxiety that overtakes you that is not common to man. There is somebody else who has experienced the same thing that you have and that knows what is going on the same way that you do. It may be a different situation that brought it on, but anxiety is a pretty universal thing. And the Bible says that there is nothing that has overtaken you that's not common to man. That's the first promise. You're not alone. Number two, there's no anxiety that is beyond your ability. 
That's what most people say. However, this verse tells us there's no anxiety that is beyond your ability in God's faithfulness. You and I aren't faithful. We are not as faithful as the faithful God. And He is faithful in the midst of our suffering to be everything that you and I need. We hold on and we hold on with everything we can, but our strength is not enough. That's why we sing that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Because I can hold on a long time, but temptation will get the best of me, and I fail, and I sin. But He will hold me fast. He will hold you fast. In His faithfulness, there is no anxiety that is beyond your ability. That's the second promise. And number three, there is a way out of anxiety. Not in your own ability, but in the provision of the Lord. It says, I'll go back. He says, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape. You're not doing it. You're not opening that door. You're not, you're not getting out of that house. You're not running from that temptation. He's providing it. And He says He will be faithful to do that. So number three is, there is a way out of anxiety. Not in your own ability, but in the provision of the Lord. And the last one is, you can endure anxiety because God is faithful. He will always be faithful because he cannot deny himself. And the moment that he stops being faithful, he stops being God. And so when you wrestle with the anxieties that you face, the situations that are happening, just like Habakkuk, it may not make any sense. It may not seem like it matches up with who God is. But it's, it's you and I who have to change. And God is allowing that situation into your life so that you will rest on Him. That you will know who He is. When your anxieties arise, remember what the Word tells us. Remember to go back to what you do know. He is our hope. He is the everlasting, almighty, holy, faithful, and sovereign one. And we must trust in Him. The next time we, we, I, I preach, we'll finish up this sermon for the reason that we need hope. And we'll see the actions of the hopeful and the hopeless. Let's pray. And I'm going to pray this prayer from the Valley of Vision as we close. God all-sufficient. O Lord of grace, the world is before us this day. And we are weak and fearful, but we look to you for strength. If we venture forth alone, we stumble and fall. But on Christ's arms, we are firm as the eternal hills. If we're left to the treachery of our own heart, we shall shame your name. But if we are enlightened, guided, and upheld by your Spirit, we shall bring you glory. We ask that you be our arm to support us our strength to stand, our light to see, our feet to run, our shield to protect, our sword to repel, and our sun to warm. To enrich us will not diminish your fullness. All your loving kindness is in your Son, and we urge His saving name is the one who died for us. We plead His blood to pay our debts of wrong. Father, today we... We pray and ask that you accept his worthiness for our unworthiness, his sinlessness for our transgressions, his purity for our uncleanness, 
His faithfulness for our treachery, His obedience for our lawlessness, His glory for our shame. We pray, Lord, that You accept His devotedness for our waywardness, His righteousness for our dead works, and His death for our life. Lord, You are the hope for the anxious heart. And I pray that we would be changed in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trial, that we would learn more about who You are, that we would see the glory of the almighty, sovereign, holy, faithful God who is everlasting and is always with us and that we can endure whatever we face because we know that he is with us. In your name we pray, amen. Let us stand to sing as we close.